We invite you to take your Bibles this evening, open with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. I'm uh, picking up in the uh, sermon series of the other two pastors uh, this evening, uh, carrying forward this series. Uh, we're looking uh, tonight at Romans uh, chapter 9, verses 19 through 26. If you haven't brought a Bible with you, uh, tonight our passage is found on page 945 in the Pew Bibles in the Pew Racks in front of you. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. We thank you, O God, for your saving grace in the lives of your people. Remind us again of your goodness and your mercies to those of us who know and love you, O God. Be with us in this time together. Write your word on our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen over the last few weeks as we've been going through Romans chapter 9, Romans 9 through 11 focuses on Israel, uh, ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews. What is their status? What is their future is basically the essence of uh, these chapters. Uh, Oftentimes, these chapters have been seen historically as kind of a, a parenthesis in a theological treatise which is often how the book of Romans uh, has been seen, as some kind of theological treatise. And, and sometimes scholars have not known how to, how to deal with this passage dealing with Israel, the present and, and future of Israel. And yet all along, Israel has been in view uh, in this letter. Right from the very beginning, Romans chapter 1 points out that Christ descended from David according to the flesh. That 
thesis statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile. Much of the first four chapters of Romans lay out the gospel within a Jewish background and with an eye to Jew and Gentile. Earlier in Rome, probably about eight years before Paul wrote this, there was a a Jewish uproar over Jewish Christian claims that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the Jewish Christ. We know that historically. So the the nature of this uh, letter is in part to address the issue of the status of the Jews who were God's chosen people. What has happened? But in fact, as we've seen earlier in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, the Apostle Paul addresses this head on when he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all descendants of Israel are true spiritual Israel. In other words, Paul is teaching here in Romans that true Israel has always only been a believing remnant within larger ethnic Israel. That's the way it's been from the very beginning. Some were chosen and some have been hardened. Last time we were together, Pastor Ben preached on uh, verses uh, 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 that, sorry, that last time Ben preached on verses 14 to 18, that basically election was fully in line with God's justice and righteousness. We saw that in verses uh, 14 through 18. It answers the objection, well, that's not just for God to choose some and not others. That is not just. Tonight's passage, perhaps we can put it this way, answers the objection, that's not fair that God chooses some and not others. That's not fair. Ultimately, we're going to see tonight God's choosing and hardening is for the glory of his name in all the world. God's choosing and his hardening is for the glory of his name in all the world. So in our passage tonight, Paul begins, first of all, in Uh, verse 19, as he did back in verse 14, where there Paul said, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He starts this new section with a question again. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So here the basic question is, How can God condemn us if we have no choice? How can God condemn us if we have no choice? Paul has clearly made a case for election 
in Romans chapter 9. We see it in uh, verses 11 through 13. Though they, uh, the, 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 the twins, uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 16, we see it again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And again in verse 18, so then, God has mercy on, whom, on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so here comes the objection in verse 19. Why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? By the way, there would be no objection here if salvation were according to free will. That is clear. No one can get around that possibly in this passage. If salvation is according to human free will, exclusively, there would be no objection here. But here's the objection. Who can resist his will, God's will? And so Paul gives the response here. And in one sense, his response uh, is phrased in such a way that would indicate that objection was a, a defiant objection, not honest questioning. He says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? And he goes on to say in verse 21, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? By the way, this imagery of the potter and the clay is actually an image that God used in Jeremiah chapter 18, that Israel is the clay in God's hand, and here the Apostle Paul uses it here. In other words, the point is, God has the right to, to create according to his will, as he wills, as he determines best. Note the essence here of this questioning. Do you know who you are who are asking this, these questions of God? Do you, do you know who you are? Do you realize the the difference between you and and God? You're the clay. He's the potter. Is it fitting to talk back to God in this way? Is basically what, what Paul is saying here? Is it is it really fitting? More than that, God is absolutely sovereign to do as he wills, the ruler, the creator, the maker. Matthew Henry puts it this way, who are you 
who are so foolish, so feeble, so short-sighted, so incompetent, a judge of divine counsels? Are you able to fathom the depth of God's wisdom? Why did God choose some and not others? I have no idea. We have no idea. But we do know that it's not because of anything in us, Scripture tells us over and over again. As Augustus Toplady puts it in that great, great hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Again, Matthew Henry puts it this way, God is a debtor to no man. His grace is his own, and he may give it or withhold it as it pleases him. We have, none of us, deserved it. Nay, we have all justly forfeited it a thousand times. So that herein the work of our salvation is admirably well-ordered that those who are saved must thank God only. Thank God only. None of us deserve it. Or as Tom Schreiner puts it, those who grumble against a God who refuses to save all reveal that they believe that God should save all and that salvation is not a merciful gift of God, but a necessary part of God's contractual obligations to human beings. In this theology, praise will shrivel up, for no one is thankful when God merely gives what he should. Secondly, We see in our passage that when all deserve destruction, God is good to show mercy to some. When all deserve destruction, God is good to show mercy to some. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now let's stop there. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Prepared for destruction. This is offensive to many, that God would would bring people in the world, preparing them for destruction. This is, this is, I mean, politically incorrect, theologically incorrect to many people today. Many today still believe in hell, many Christians, but it's a, a problem for many that God would create people for hell. He'd create people who he knew were going to go to destruction or who he had ordained for destruction. But, you know, it's still a problem 
if we believe that God is all-knowing and he knows the future and he's creating people that he knows are not going to believe, even if you don't believe in the doctrine of election, if, they, if God is all-knowing, he's still creating people that he knows are going to go to hell. That's a problem as well. That's why we've got this uh, theology coming out about God not knowing everything. But anyhow, we won't get into that tonight. But here it's explicit in Paul's language. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Prepared for destruction. And notice he contrasts this in verse 23 in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. An explicit contrast, prepared for destruction, prepared for glory. In fact, he emphasizes prepared beforehand for glory. As Paul says elsewhere, chosen before the creation of the world. God as sovereign creator has the right to do this. And God is just in doing this. And what this does is it highlights that salvation is all of his mercy. God does not have to save anyone. But mercifully, he saves some to reveal his glory. And what happens then? God, of course, is the one who gets the glory, as it should be. God is the one who gets the glory. All praise goes to God, especially when we look at this against the backdrop of the wrath of God. When we understand what we deserve because of our, of our sin, we are, we are humbled, we should be led to praise that when we see that we are objects not of God's wrath, but we are objects of God's mercy. And we see here that this is God's purpose to show his glory in his mercy. Verse 23 again, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. But notice also he goes on. He uses the word glory twice here in verse 23. The riches of his glory to vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This word glory is prepared these vessels for glory, which can mean actually one of two things. It can mean either our glorification, where our glorified bodies that Scripture says that we will have, or also simply to bask in and to enjoy the glory of God when we see him face to face. And I actually think it's probably both here. Is it one or the other? It's it's both here. We We will have a new state fitted to truly enjoy and worship and fellowship with God forever and ever. 
Many people ask, have asked me over the years, when I was a college professor in particular, and, and I would teach on the doctrine of election, students would often come to me and say, how do I know that I'm elect? How do I know that I am, I am elect? Well, there are, I think, many ways we can know, but one is that worship and enjoyment is our greatest delight. The worship, the enjoyment of God is our greatest delight and our desire. What we'll be doing for all eternity is our greatest delight and our desire now. The worship, the enjoyment of our God. Another part of it is, of course, to be more like Christ. Coming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you want more in this life? God wants you to enjoy Him, to worship Him, to delight in Him, to be like Him, to cherish God, not to cherish ourselves. How we reflect on His mercy. We reflect on His mercy. God has not treated us as our sins deserve. One of the, one of the wonderful, well-known episodes out of George Whitfield's life was one day when Whitfield was preaching to a crowd. And as Whitfield was preaching uh, off on the side of where they were, they saw... Uh, Guards, police, whatever it was, uh, care, uh, taking off a notorious criminal uh, to go to be executed, to the place of execution. And the crowds cheered at seeing this notorious criminal being taken off to be executed. But not Whitfield. He stood there solemnly, and when the When the crowd quieted down, he simply said to them, There, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. He knew God's grace. He knew God's mercy. He deserved death, just like that criminal. But he knew God's grace. And he knew God's mercy. Third and finally, more than mercy, God pours out his love on his people. Look at verses 24 to 26. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Even us, he says, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. It's not just Jews who are going to know God. It is Gentiles as well. But there will be both Jews and Gentiles included, he says. And notice the the election 
language that Paul uh, uses here, the, the language of being called. This is God's effectual call on people's lives that draws them uh, to himself. And he says in verse 25, quoting from Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Those who are not mine will be mine. Not beloved will be beloved. Why? Because they become a part of God's family. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, in love he predestined us to be his own beloved children. While we were outside of Christ, we were his enemies. When we come to saving faith in Christ, we become his children, his beloved children, as we see in verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. From not loved at all to his beloved children. What a beautiful picture. Enemies of God, opposing God, running away from God, if not like the Apostle Paul, actually persecuting his church, hating his church, trying to do away with his church. But being brought in, becoming beloved, adopted as his beloved children. Nothing else could do this except the great love of God for his people. The powerful love of God that draws his sons and his daughters to him. I was struck recently, I don't know, within the last few weeks or so, and we sang that, that wonderful uh, Getty hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. For some reason, it struck me particularly on this particular Sunday, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Outside of Christ, we, we are simply wretches. Do not deserve God's favor, God's grace, lost in our sin. And yet God is gracious and great and loving to us, his people. As John puts it in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me end with this quote, this short poem from St. Augustine. He wrote this, the church father Augustine wrote this many, many years ago. This Lord, our God, the word of God, the word made flesh, the son of the father, the Son of God, the Son of Man, exalted 
that he might create us, humbled that he might recreate us, walking among men, suffering what is human, concealing what is divine. Let every sigh be a panting after Christ. Let that most beautiful one who loved even the ugly, that he might make them beautiful, let him be longed for. Hurry to him alone. Sigh for him. May that be our desire and our prayer. Let's pray. Indeed, O oh God, how we long for you, how we sigh for you because of your great grace and your mercies to us who do not, do not deserve it, who have not earned it and cannot earn it. And yet, O oh God, we who were not your people, who were not beloved because we were running away from you, you have drawn us to yourself by your grace, by your mercies, by your power, and by your great love. So we thank you that you have made us yours. We thank you for your electing grace that has not only drawn us, but that has changed and transformed our lives. Continue, O oh God, your transforming work, growing us in grace and the love of Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.